living the dream with Ben and Rodney. Here's your host, Ben Wilson. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. I'm your host, Ben Wilson, and my colleague Rodney has a day off because I've traveled down to Miami to visit my friend Andrew Frey to talk about what's going on in Miami real estate and design and development. Andrew is not only a friend of mine, but a former colleague. We practiced together at the Gunster Law Firm in the mid-2000s, and um, since that time, Andrew has gone on to uh, be not only a prolific uh, zoning and real estate lawyer in Miami, but also he's gone into the development world and is currently the director of development at Fortis Design and Build here in the Wynwood area. So today I want to give Andrew the opportunity to talk about some of the projects that he's working on, his insight as to what's going on in Miami, especially like in the Wynwood area where we are we are right now, and also the trends he's seeing as well with development around like transit development, like Brightline, Tri-Rail, uh, which is starting to be a really big thing in South Florida. So Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm glad to have you on. Ben, thanks for having me on the show. It is great to catch up and I uh, can't wait for it. Yeah. So let's go ahead and get started because we're right here in Wynwood, um, you know, one of the hot areas of development going on in Miami. And of course, Fortis Design and Build is involved in a lot of really interesting projects. Tell me a little bit about Fortis Design and Build. Uh, awesome. The, the company was started by Andrew Lanahan and David Polinsky. Um, it's mostly a fee development company, uh, helping out-of-town investors execute uh, real estate development projects here in Wynwood. But we do do some projects for our own account. In fact, that's how the company was started. Uh, 250 Wynwood, uh, right behind Panther Coffee, was the first new construction project in Wynwood since Wynwood became a thing. So after uh, Joey is opened and Wynwood Walls opened, um, David and Andrew developed and built uh, 250 Wynwood, which is 11 condo units over ground floor retail. Um, so we started with a, with a sponsor project um, and from there moved into some fee development projects. Um, we were the original fee developer for Wynwood 25, uh, which uh, was eventually built by uh, Related. Um, but we, we helped uh, East End Capital uh, mm -hmm. conceptualize, design, and, and, and title that deal. Um, we were also the fee developer for uh, Cube for Red Sky, also uh, behind Panther Coffee, um, and uh, Wynwood Walk for Thor uh, across in the Ducati site in the north end of Wynwood, mm -hmm. uh, which is a retail project. Um, and now we're involved with... Uh, other projects like uh, a hotel um, for Phil Levine and Scott Robbins, um, also uh, the collective uh, co-living project, which will, will replace the Ducati uh, right. site. So we're involved with a lot of the stuff that's happening here in Wynwood. Right. So, and you know, I just see all the things in the in the newspaper and even the the, the items on your wall with all the new projects going on in Wynwood. I guess talk about the transformation of Wynwood from, you know, this place that was more for artists and, and, and to where it's really got a lot of high-end projects now, both in retail, um, apartments, uh, stuff. It's, it's really changed a lot in the past five years. Yes, yeah. And I'm a relative newcomer to it. I've only been at Fortis for a little more than two years. Um, and I want to just caveat all this by saying I don't fully understand Wynwood. I really appreciate what it is today, um, but 
the early special sauce um, that uh, you know Dave Lombardi and Tony Goldman and some of the early pioneer investors and redevelopers here in Wynwood created. I I, I just I couldn't replicate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's something about the art and the culture and the way they gave it an organic feel. Um, something about the gritty uh, streetscape um, as an alternative to some of this more slick uh, atmospheres in South Florida. Something, something that I just can't quite put my finger on, but it no doubt has transformed a lot. Um, and there was a big wave of speculation um, where people were paying quite a bit uh, for land. And then Wynwood got its own custom zoning, um, which I think uh, kind of retroactively justified uh, some of those land prices that, that, that may have been too high prior to that, but then with the new zoning um, kind of unlocked some value. Um, and then now with each project that gets built, um, neighborhood, the neighborhood becomes more complete. Um, you go from, I don't want to say a one-trick pony, but Wynwood was known for you know sort of one-story buildings, windowless former warehouses, throw up graffiti and beautiful mural art on the walls, uh, F and B, mm-hmm. and and that was that was kind of the Wynwood thing. Now, Wynwood is getting filled with office, and then next there'll be a wave of of hotels and some residential projects. Um, and the neighborhood is becoming more complete and therefore more fundamentally sound as a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so the transformation, I think, is just improving the fundamentals of the neighborhood. What are some of your favorite projects in Wynwood that are in the process of being developed right now or just came online? Because when you think of Wynwood as far as like places to go, um, you mentioned Tony Goldman. Um, I remember when I was at Shutz, I was on the team. We represented them on some things. Of course, you had Joey's, mm-hmm. the restaurant, um, which was there has been there for many years in Wynwood Walls. And um, that's really what I thought of with Wynwood. And I think mm-hmm. they had the Electric Pickle, which was a club that just closed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I went to um, that many times. And, of course, now you've got things like the uh, Number 3 Social and, and things like that. So what are some yeah. of the, the new projects that you're excited about? Well, I'm... Uh, very excited for the ones that we're involved with, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see um, some of this new wave of hospitality come online. Um, the uh, There's redevelopment plays that are happening. The Oasis, which mm-hmm. is just, just to the east of where we're sitting right now, um, that's kind of more of a classic Wynwood adaptive reuse mm-hmm. play um, by a development group called Carpe. And i um, really excited for what that's going to bring. It's going to bring some really nice courtyard space. Um, and I think that's one of the complaints about Wynwood is that it's, it's a great, fun place to walk around, but the sidewalks are narrow and there isn't a lot of public open space. So I think that project will contribute some great open space. Um, and speaking of that, there are also plans with the Business Improvement District in the city of Miami to do more streetscape improvements in the neighborhood. And I think that'll really help because um, the sidewalks are very narrow. And they, they are narrow. They're full of, you know, FPL poles and uh, curb cuts and all that kind of thing. So 
as much as people really love uh, walking around Wynwood, um, hopefully with the with the city's help, that'll be even more pleasant experience. Um, you know, you mentioned that some hotels are going to be coming into Wynwood. Um, what do you think about those as far as um, being successful here? Because I know the design's going to be very unique. Um, I'm sure they'll probably may have some rooftop components, probably, I guess, restaurants involved, things like that. You can, you can speak to that. Yeah. But I guess when I think of people coming to Miami for vacation, they're staying in Miami Beach. They're staying somewhere where they have a water view, uh, maybe on Brickell. But if you're in Wynwood, you don't always have the water view. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts about the, the hotel projects going on here? I think that I think they'll be successful. Um, Wynwood is now, I believe, the second most visited destination in Dade County. Really? After, after South Beach. I, did, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. So um, there is, and there's not a single hotel in Wynwood. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's probably a significant amount of pent up demand mm-hmm. uh, for the visitor, the tourist, uh, to stay in Wynwood. Also, given the amount of office construction that's happening in Wynwood, I think there'll be a business traveler mm. um, that's going to be here for Wynwood. Um, and it, get, it, it gets back to um, sort of the special sauce of Wynwood. Wynwood now reminds me of Lincoln Road when you and I, I think, first came to Miami, mm-hmm. which was like, I would call it Miami's happy place. Mm. <laughs> that's where you, you, know, you put on your freshest outfit you know, you ask out that guy or girl that you always wanted to. You overpay for some drinks, but you feel really good the whole night. Mm-hmm. And 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 you're walking up and down, and uh, it's tourists. It was also locals at the time on, on Lincoln Road. And speaking of which, there's a party a party group going out uh, by the window right now. Yep. Um, and that was not Lincoln Road for a while, and there and and now it's and now that role I think is taken up. By Wynwood, and it's on the mainland, mm. and which is more accessible, and it's I think because of that and maybe some other factors more diverse too. You get a lot of locals, you get a lot of tourists from every income bracket enjoying Wynwood, um, and so I think that it has a, it has this draw of a destination, and that will help <laughs> make these hotels successful. So at Fortis, um, one of the things that you guys do is you do the design and build. What are some trends that you're seeing right now for um, office components and hotel to make it like cool and everything, but also making it functional for Wynwood? Sure. So um, on the office side, we have been involved with Cube for Red Sky, um, and uh, but unfortunately haven't been able to get involved with with some of the other office projects. Um, a big component of Cube is co-working tenant spaces, which is a division of Regis. Mm-hmm. And um, the co-working trend, I think, is an important part of uh, Wynwood, of the office market right now. Um, smaller, more entrepreneurial companies want to be in Wynwood. That's part of the Wynwood brand. It's not just the art. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just the nightlife, the F&B. Uh, Wynwood also has uh, that entrepreneurial component um, because of the lab was originally here and uh, some of the smaller office spaces and the Wynwood building. Um, So smaller office suites, uh, co-working, 
you know, renting a cubicle, renting a desk. Um, that's that was that's that's a big part of spaces at uh, at Cube, and also you're seeing uh, WeWork on top of the Goldman Garage, um, so they're here, and um, uh, the lab is still here in Wynwood, still going strong. Um, so co-working is is a big part of it too. Um, the other aspects to be seen. Um, there's an office uh, building being built catty corner from my office here. There's uh, Sterling Bay building a very large office building on the west side of Wynwood. Um, larger floor plates. Um, we'll see what kind of tenant comes in there. Could mm -hmm. be that they have the large tech, uh, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon type of folks in mind. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe it'll be smaller, smaller tenants, not sure. Right. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting, too, because some of these office components that come in, it's like sometimes the rent is so expensive that for your entrepreneurs starting out, they, they like the co-working situation because, you know, they've got this idea, but they don't want to spend, you know, thousands of dollars. They don't have the money to spend thousands of dollars a month in rent, but you want those kind of people in there because if they're doing the co-working, they have to go to lunch somewhere. They yeah. do something after work, so you're kind of building in a customer base for your restaurants. So um, it'll be interesting. I've also seen with some of the um, apartments that have been developed here, they're designing them where they don't have, I guess, parking garages. Is that right? Or they have, like, minimal parking. They're encouraging people. Um, it's more of a tenant who may not have that car, and they're relying on Uber or walking to work. I, th I, think, you're, I think you're right. I think it's... Partly in the design of the buildings, mm. they're being designed with, with a little bit less parking. Although the two, the two new ones in Wynwood, Wynwood 25 and the Bradley, uh, do have you know, a fairly significant amount of parking. Oh, they do? Okay. Um, and however, for, uh, for some of our other fee development clients, we have gone out and studied uh, at least how Wynwood 25 is operating. Um, even though it's not fully leased up. Um, so we had um, a traffic study done uh, uh, by just having traffic engineers stand on the sidewalk uh, outside of Wynwood 25 and ask people and observe how they're coming to and from the building. And just for example, one of their findings was that only one-third of the trips in and out of that building mm -hmm. were in cars. Two-thirds of the trips in and out of that building were people walking to do stuff in the neighborhood. And I think that's pretty unusual. Mm -hmm. So does that mean a lot of their residents perhaps are working from home or they're doing like the work workscape thing and or maybe they're just Ubering or something? Yeah, it could be that they're working from home or that they live here and they work somewhere else in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, or they are making a trip by Uber or Lyft or private vehicle to their work, but that's the only trip that they're taking that day. Mm -hmm. Everything else that they need to do is they can do walking. Um, whether it's walking to Target in Midtown, you know, or walking um, to a restaurant here or walking to the gym. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of great gyms in the neighborhood. Um, so that was a, that was a really interesting finding um, that just speaks to the walkability of the neighborhood. So uh, I think that that trend will continue. There'll be, you know, as buildings get built with slightly less parking and then 
developers see that the residents are using even less mm -hmm. then the next cycle of projects they'll build even less parking and then it'll be to the to the to the point where hopefully the market's able to set that parking level rather than government uh, you know set ratios right um, you know one thing we talked about a little bit too and to kind of staying on the theme with transportation is the growth of uh, transit oriented development in Miami and um, of course you you're on the board for um, for one of the, the major um, sources of transportation um, in the um, tri-rail and we also have Virgin um, Airlines getting or not Virgin Airlines Virgin um, Brightline is gonna yeah. increase there but I mean I only see that increasing in Miami just because we're getting more and more people and you can't always expand the roads because you don't really have any area to eminent domain unless I guess you start eminent domaining major buildings and you're talking about major payouts to yeah. these owners so what do you kind of see uh, well I guess talk about you know the the development through transportation and just kind of transportation in general in South Florida since you're on the board for for one of them uh, yeah, so this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and my fellow uh, Tri-Rail board members will tell you that I harp on this every month at our board meetings. Um, and I definitely want to talk about new transit investment uh, that's happening, but I want to start with something that I, that I, that I try to emphasize uh, whenever I get a chance to talk about this. Miami has actually made passenger rail investments over the last several decades. We've built Tri-Rail 30 years ago, we built Metro th Rail 30 years ago. Since then, we've built the Metro Mover and the Metro Extension to the airport. And so, do I wish we'd built more? Probably yes. However, the greatest tragedy of our mobility scenario down here in South Florida isn't that we didn't build rail. We did, we actually did. The worst part about it is after we did that, we built our housing as far away from it as possible. You know, the massive amounts of density that you have in the southwest parts of Dade County, mm -hmm. far from the Metro Rail, or the northeast parts of Dade County in Aventura, Sunny Isles Beach, and some of those coastal high-rise communities. Again, nowhere near public transportation. Um, and so that is unfortunate in a number of reasons. First of all, for all the residents of Dade County that didn't get the benefit of the public transportation that already existed, mm -hmm. um, which could have brought them greater access to jobs, lower cost of living, all those sorts of things. Secondarily, it also hurt the viability of the transportation itself because Miami-Dade Transit and Tri-Rail, we have been collecting lower, than, lower fares than we should have been for the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. And as a result, required greater and greater public subsidy. And that's money coming out of the taxpayer's pocket. So I think it was unfortunate on both of those levels. Um, so the first thing, the first priority, I think, for Dade County is to learn how to do transit-oriented development predictably and consistently. And we can't do that. In fact, it's even worse than that. When you, when, when, it, when, when you don't know how to do something, you get it right 50% of the time. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, we have gotten it virtually 100% wrong for the last 30 years. So not only do we not know what we're doing, we're actively doing the 
opposite. Right. And I do know at least for um, where I bought over at Canvas, which is just a couple of blocks away, I can see it from here. Um, one of the reasons why I bought there is um, in that arts and entertainment district, they they were starting to develop and stuff, but just a block away, there was a metro um, uh, rail site or mm -hmm. stop where like if I wanted to go to the heat game or something like that, I just go and I hop on that and I can go to the heat, Miami Heat game or the Perez Art Museum, things like that. And of course, the Mellow Group, they went and bought a bunch of sites and they've built a bunch of apartments around there. And when they were doing their marketing for both, for all of those projects, the marketing was, hey, stay here because you can get on the metro rail and it's close to take you wherever you need to go yeah. kind of a thing. I think it's a great pitch. And I think a metro mover is a fantastic asset for downtown. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I hope developers uh, play that up. So if we can get transit-oriented zoning right and then transit-oriented development right around the existing rail corridors that we have, then hopefully we can start making investments in even more. Mm. So putting uh, more tri-rail stations on the right line corridor, uh, building transit, maybe the Bay Link out to Miami Beach. That's been an idea that's kicking around since when Neeson was <laughs> yeah. our, our former, my former mentor, our former colleague, uh, was mayor of Miami Beach. Um, maybe some bus wrap, more, improve the dedicated bus lanes going down US-1, bus maybe dedicated bus lanes on Kendall Drive. Mm -hmm. But I think that before we do those things, or while at the same time as we do those things, we need to know that we understand what transit-oriented zoning is because we, we seem to have gotten that wrong for several decades. Mm -hmm. So since your background in law is on land use and zoning, what what are some things that you think you know are, are great right now with zoning because you're you know, designing these projects in Wynwood and other areas of Miami? And in addition to the transit or zoning, what things do you think need to maybe change in zoning to, uh, that might be a, an hour discussion. Yeah, but, uh, that's like a four-day discussion. <laughs> okay. Because, I mean, one of the things with Miami is, I mean, Florida's growing so fast. Even my project up in Central Florida in Vieira, you know, it's growing very fast because people are wanting to come to Florida because, number one, the weather's generally great. Yeah. Um, the income tax structure is great because you don't pay state income tax in yeah. states like Florida and Tennessee and Texas. They're growing by leaps and bounds for that because people are leaving New York or Illinois and different these states that have the high taxes for here. So we're going to have the people coming, yeah. but we need to have the designs and everything to, uh, to make sense to accommodate all these people. Sure, sure. I, I know this is a, a subject that's you know very near and dear to your heart too. I mean, you're you're very passionate about land use issues as well. Um, and you're right, there's people coming here uh, every day, huge amounts of demand, not only in Miami, but throughout the, throughout the state of Florida, including where you're, where you're developing. Um, and we're seeing that in uh, affordability issues, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. at least definitely in South Florida and I think in other parts of the state. Um, and there's plenty of government programs, low-income housing tax credit, Section 8, affordable housing trust funds, surtax dollars, and things like that that, that can help subsidize rent-controlled projects. But I think the main issue is with zoning, uh, not, there's not enough permitted density. Um, 
there's not enough capacity in our zoning to create the amount of supply that can keep up with this demand. Um, there is huge amounts of density zoned for waterfront land, mm -hmm. um, but that land obviously very expensive, and the the the, the cost of land drives therefore the, the the price you have to charge for the the housing at the end. Right. So that's always going to be luxury uh, condos, and really not built for the for for Miamians. It's often no. flight capital, uh, you know, cycle after cycle. It's it's flight capital or cocaine cowboys or back in the day, <laughs> um, and it's not. It's just not built for Miamians. Mm -hmm. So we need to look at that non-waterfront land, the second and third tier urban neighborhoods, hopefully closer to jobs and transit than other waves of, of housing supply that we've built, and get the get the density right on those lands where we can keep up with demand and and, and keep downward pressure on housing prices. So yeah. that's the biggest issue that I see with our zoning is the permitted density is not there. Right. No, that is a huge issue, and it always has been. But I'm just thinking of like, you know, Brickell, you're full of condos there and apartments. And, I mean, some of these new apartments that are coming online, or that have come online recently, they're, they're ultra luxury. I mean, yes. you're paying probably $3,000 a month in rent for a, mm -hmm. a one-bedroom one there. Two bedroom, probably four to five thousand. Yeah, I don't know if it's five thousand, but I mean the gyms are fantastic. All yeah. these great amenities, but then the thing is, when it's that expensive, you're paying that much in rent. You can't unless you're making like six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year. You're not able to save enough to put the down payment down that you need to buy a condo or that house, and then you want to buy the house, and you're like, well, man, it's like a couple of million dollars for this and that, and a lot of people are just saying, you know what? I'm okay with the apartment and they still want the high density stuff though because they like to be able to get the amenities and have neighbors and be walking the neighborhoods and stuff yeah, and you yeah. see it not only in Brickell but Midtown we're seeing it more in Edgewater I guess talk a little bit about um, the Miami Midtown area because when we first I guess we were starting 2004 or 5 yeah. um, Midtown Miami was kind of a new project that really got started and then it got started and we had the boom um, coming to an end, yeah, yeah. but yet it's transcended a lot and seems to be very successful. And I'm seeing more and more projects going on there. Yeah. What's your take about Midtown Miami? Would you mind if I go back really quickly to the to the income? Yeah, and the rent sure. problem. Mm -hmm. So um, Miami has the highest cost burden, or one of the highest cost burdens of any city in the U.S. Probably number one or two in terms of the percentage of income that the average person pays to cover their housing costs. Right. Over 30%, many households over 50% of their income are going to housing costs. And uh, there was, so I'm gonna, you know, maybe this is controversial, but thinking back on the, uh, the whole Amazon HQ2 process, I know that Dade County put together a proposal for HQ2. Mm. Um, and on the one hand, yes, it would have been great to attract a major corporation with a lot of job growth to our county. But flip that a little bit and think about, think about it from the perspective of the workers. If 
all of those Amazon workers would be paid roughly like similar, similarly just, you know, distribution to existing Dade County jobs, they're getting all of those workers where, where, wherever Amazon would have located HQ2, if it had located in Miami-Dade County, its workers would have been taking home the least percentage of their paycheck than any other city that they could have located in. I think that's and, why they went to Nashville, because if you go to Nashville, yes, downtown Nashville is, is pretty expensive, but there are a lot of communities outside of Nashville where it's, it's very affordable. Yeah, yeah. So, so from the perspective of the worker, you know, the jobs flowing to the cities where the workers can take home the most of their paycheck. That's mm -hmm. another way to look at this. And that's problematic for Dade County. Um, if, if, if employers know that their workers would take home the least amount of their paycheck by locating in Miami-Dade County, why would they move here? Mm. So anyway, um, back to... We'll, we'll go back to that then. <laughs> back to, to, to Midtown. Um, so yeah, I think when, when, when you and I were at Gunster, um, Neeson and Spencer and myself got involved with, um, with the custom zoning for Midtown. Yeah. Time. yeah. And just one thing, um, we mentioned uh, Neeson. Neeson is uh, Neeson Kasdan, who is, uh, we both worked for at Gunster. Um, when you think of like real icons in Miami, um, I, I think Neeson Kasdan is up there. Um, maybe you'll listen to this podcast, but um, Neeson was a former mayor of Miami Beach and really was um, at the helm when Miami Beach really transcended and became like very, very trendy and popular in the 1990s. Um, then when he phased out, I think on term limits, mm -hmm. as mayor of Miami Beach, he went into the practice of law at the Gunster Law Firm that Andrew and I started at. Now he is at the Ackerman Law Firm, which is one of the um, largest law firms in Miami and all of Florida and even the, the, the country. And he's managing partner in Miami, and they were very involved with uh, the Brickell City Center design and stuff. So um, Neeson's really a, a major power player in the development of, uh, of Miami, to say the least. Absolutely, absolutely. A great mentor and friend, and he just got the, the Urban Land Institute Lifetime Achievement Award mm -hmm. uh, a few months ago, so that was uh, well-deserved, and a lot of people got to celebrate him. Um, and so very on in, in, his, uh, in his department, the zoning department, uh, life, uh, only a couple years into it, we got involved with the, with the custom zoning for Midtown. Uh, it had been uh, an old rail yard um, owned by this, the company that now has started Brightline, and they sold it for, for private development. And um, the east part was zoned for uh, high-rise apartment and condo towers, and the west side was zoned for a, uh, a mixed-use retail, multi-block, massive retail development. Um, and that, that helped catalyze investment in this area um, only a couple towers got built before the, the Great Recession. Mm. Um, land changed hands, and then in this cycle, uh, a bunch more of the uh, residential blocks have gotten built. And it's a very uh, popular neighborhood. Um, it's close to downtown, close to jobs, um, got good restaurants, convenient retail. They have that big park in the middle. They got a great park. For dogs. Yep, great for dog walking. 
And uh, they got Target, which includes groceries, so it's very convenient for your daily necessities as well as your going out. Um, so it, that's been that's been a, that's been a successful little pocket neighborhood. Um, and then Edgewater, true you know, true Edgewater, on the street ends between Biscayne Boulevard and and, and the Bayfront, seen a lot more development as well in this cycle. And um, they got a Publix as well down by the Arch Center. Mm -hmm. um, a very busy Publix. Yeah, yeah. Well, the un unbelievable density. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable density. Yeah, because that Publix is one where, I mean, you know, where I'm at in Central Florida, Publix is designed where there's a grocery store and you've got a great big parking lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. And next to Publix, you've got your Fantastic Sam's haircuttery and you've mm -hmm. got your ice cream shop and a dentist, which we have a lot of dentists up in the, our area, but, uh, <laughs> but it's just a big parking lot. And then you go to the bigger cities and they don't design like that because you don't have the room for it. That's just such valuable land that what they do is like they'll have Publix as an anchor, but they'll have parking garages that will serve all of the tenants. And really, I think that is a, a much smarter way to go because you're maximizing your revenue on that track of land. Because in Miami, you've got to have your grocery stores and these kind of things like that, but you don't always have the land for these huge surface parking lots. And even Midtown yeah. designed their their projects that way with the garages around them. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's that Publix. So, so there's the surface park Publix, which is the you know typical suburban Publix mm -hmm. you're talking about, and you'd see in other parts of Florida. Um, then you get to the situation where it's still just a standalone Publix, or maybe a Publix with a couple of other smaller retail tenants, and then there's the parking above. Mm -hmm. But it's just essentially one story retail with parking above. But then you get the situation where it's ground floor parking, structured or ground floor Publix structured parking, and then more above that, whether it's office or residential, like the Whole Foods downtown mm -hmm. on the ground floor. So the Publix here in, in, in Edgewater uh, is that kind of that intermediate where they went vertical, um, but they didn't, they didn't continue vertical with the office or residential tower above. So it's, it's right there in the middle of a lot of density, but they also left a lot of development rights on the table by not building a, a tower above. Right. So they still have those air rights available to, to build more, I guess. It's just from an architectural yeah. standpoint, I guess it'd be very difficult to do. Yeah, I don't think they could do that, but there, there's, there's ways that you can transfer those to adjacent uh, parcels of land. Right. So um, I, don't know if, I don't know if any of the adjacent landowners are interested in doing that, but it is possible. Yeah. You know, one thing to mention about with Midtown, and going back to your point about the affordable housing issue, mm -hmm. I mean, if, even if you want to live in Midtown, it's, it's not as expensive as if you w want to go on Brickell, but it's still not exactly cheap for people. I mean, there, I'm, I'm sure a one bedroom there is $1,800 a month minimum, probably more like 2000 Yeah. Um, two bedrooms and things like that. So I know when I came down from Kentucky and did you know, my master's at UM and I was deciding whether to, to stay in Miami or go elsewhere, I was like, I just said in my head, I've got to be able to make a minimum of $80,000 a year yeah. to, to make it. Yeah. in Miami and it was just me uh, let, let alone you know a family or whatever yeah and I think today it's like the same thing if you're not making that you, you can't live in Midtown or um, these different areas unless you have a roommate and I know I didn't want a roommate yeah at that point I mean um, 
And if you think about a lot of the jobs in Miami, you've got a lot of service industry jobs. And you've got to have the service industry jobs because Miami is so big in tourism. Sure. But yet, if these people can't afford to live in the area, yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard stories where people are like, you know, get in one area and, and meet, and then they're like sharing Uber or going to yeah. wherever they work. Yeah. And yeah. like you said, that's just a huge problem because in Miami, we're all about nightlife and entertainment and things like that, but you've yeah. got to find the employees. Absolutely. It's, it is a, it's a big problem. And actually, thank God for Uber. Right. Thank God for Uber and, and Lyft and their you know carpooling features because that has stepped in and allowed access to jobs for 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 people where the Dade County, for example, Dade County bus system, uh, the bus routes are very convoluted and 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 often make it uh, many transfers and and, and multiple hours to get from where the housing is affordable to where the jobs are for, for someone at that wage level. Um, so to be able to get door-to-door in an Uber pool or a Lyft line, um, that's actually been a saving grace. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's definitely not as cheap as a bus, but it, you know, it gets you home to your family so you can actually spend time you know, uh, after working really, 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 really hard, right. uh, actually get home in less than an hour and a half. Yeah, I guess to talk a little bit more about affordable housing because, um, you know, they like you did mention, the, the county does have affordable housing tax credits that are available, and there are a lot of developers out there, um, or at least a good handful I know, yeah. that they do this affordable housing development. Yeah. Um, talk about what it's like to be a, and I know you've worked with developers and been a developer in that. Yeah. What's it like from a developer to go through that process, and then like who's your clientele? Because my my thought initially on it is, okay, it's helping people who, I mean, really they don't make very much, but what about the people who are making 50000 a year? Are they kind of one of these things where it's like, hey, you make too much money for that, but yet you really don't have enough money to, to live in Brickle or wherever? Yeah. And yeah. I think that's probably the gap of housing that you were talking about earlier that we just don't have in Miami. So uh, out above, you know, the capital A affordable rent thresholds, which is somewhere, I don't know, depending on the definition, 60% of area median income, maybe 80% of area median, in, median income. Um, above that, there there is also, I mean, there's still an affordability problem. There, there's actually an affordability problem at almost every income and almost every rent and price level in Dade County. Um, so the capital A affordable projects, the low-income housing tax credit projects. Um, I am no expert in those. I've done only market rate housing. Okay. I haven't done any rent controlled um, housing. Um, I hear about it. I have good friends who are in that industry, and I've, it would be really interesting maybe for you to do a future podcast with somebody like Ken Naylor at Atlantic Pacific who can talk to you uh, about uh, all the intricacies uh, that are involved there because even with the low-income housing tax credits, those are allocated by the federal government to the states, and mm-hmm. then each state develops its own point system for how they award those tax credits to projects. Mm-hmm. And the point system is constantly changing. Um, and the folks up in Tallahassee are trying to find better, more accurate formulas for how and where to build mm-hmm. this, uh, this, this housing. But Dade County actually has a cap um, uh, of two or three projects a year 
uh, of this uh, low-income housing tax credit or LIHTC uh, mm -hmm. projects. And those projects are averaging around 100 units mm -hmm. uh, a piece these days. So we're really only talking about 300 units of housing in Dade County on an annual basis when our housing affordability problem is 300, 400, 500,000 households. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I think I maybe said this at, at the top of the podcast, but it's not to say we don't do those programs or don't find ways to make them more efficient, um, but they do represent a very marginal um, solution to the problem. Um, that said, you know, what are the ways to make it more efficient, uh, to address the, the point system? There has been efforts in the past to look at City of Miami zoning code, compare it to the Tallahassee point system, and find ways that we can make our zoning code match up with the points so it's easier to win uh, tax credits for projects in Dade County. And actually, the last time that that was done, I think under the leadership of then Commissioner Suarez, now mayor, mm -hmm. um, City of Miami won every single tax credit project that was available that year. Mm -hmm. And so that was when the, the cap was instituted because we were so good at aligning our proposals with the state point system that we just, we, we won everything. So yeah. now we're capped. Yeah, and I know, um, you know, when I was at Shetson Bow and I was on a team, we, we represented a, a low-income housing or a yeah, low-income housing developer, but they, I remember they always had to go through those points. And it was a very, very competitive process, and so we'd do a ton of contracts for sites, but we'd always have the right to terminate if we didn't get tax credits. It was a, a contract condition for closing, and so we might do, like, try to tie up 10, 15 sites, and then you only end up picking three. Yeah, out if, of the year, if that, that yeah, and um, you know it's very interesting because and, and even if you win the credits, then you probably still need two or three other government gap funding sources to make yeah, the Yeah, I remember work. those closings where um, I mean I, I didn't get as involved in the final closings, but I know there were like two different, two or three different sources of income. You'd get like county funds, mm -hmm. then you'd there would be like some state funds, and it, it was like a whole bunch of like different deals. Sometimes there'd be some private lenders there. Yeah. So it's very complicated stuff, but it's one of those things too where I feel like in Miami, like you know, we're talking about all the land acquisitions going on in Winwood and everything, how expensive it is for the for just the raw land. Yeah. That if you're a developer, you're expecting to make a certain amount of return, and your construction costs they are what they are, and they're not going down. Yeah. And you've got to. It's like, well, hey, if I've had to pay so much for the land, mm -hmm. I've almost got to sell it at this price point. Yeah. Um, and then that's a problem. I know even at Canvas, um, their price points were maybe like anywhere from high twos at the beginning when they went for um, mm -hmm. for um, launch for um, the the presale. I think the highest in there maybe like six fifty or something. But you go to Brickell, um, you know they're easily a lot of condos eight hundred thousand, nine hundred thousand, and Canvas sold out or. I don't think they're sold out yet, but they sold pretty well because there's that need for that demographic of, of people who they can pay three to four hundred thousand dollars for their place. But still, when you you do that, your mortgage payment is twenty one hundred, twenty two hundred a month. You got condo association fees of yeah. five hundred a month. Yeah. Property taxes. You're really looking at probably twenty eight hundred to three thousand dollars a month. Easily. Which means, 
goes back to our point of if you don't make eighty thousand dollars <laughs> minimum in your income you might as well you, you can't live east of i-95 at least in a unless you're like north miami beach um stuff like that but even then you know little haiti i know that's starting to uh, develop more because people are being pushed out from Wynwood. Are you familiar with projects going on there? I'm not too familiar. Um, I just I hear some headlines about uh, Magic City and other projects, but I don't, yeah. I'm not too familiar. Got it. All right, so we've talked about Wynwood and Midtown. What are some other uh, like hot areas in in Miami that you're excited about right now with development? Well, I think what's interesting is people ask often, "What's the what's the next Wynwood?" And what's the next hot area? And my response, and actually my hope, is that there isn't one. Mm -hmm. Because when you get another Wynwood, you get a run-up in land prices. And to your point, then you, then you have affordability problems. And I think what people are understanding post-Wynwood is that they have choices. If, if landowners or landlords start price gouging, they can go somewhere else. So post Wynwood, people are going to Little Haiti, Little River, Alapata, Little Havana, Southeast Hialeah, and uh, taking some of these independent galleries or artistic or creative um, redevelopment plays or, or small businesses to a bunch of different neighborhoods. And I think that's a more natural, normal, organic way to do to do neighborhood investment, and and hopefully it'll be healthier and more sustainable. Mm -hmm. I know um, when we were at Gunster, you, um, along with Neeson, did a lot of work in Miami Beach. Um, yeah. And talk about that because one thing about in Miami Beach, um, they have the historic preservation mm -hmm. um, codes in there and development. But I mean, what do you, what do you think about the development going on in South Beach right now? Because we talked a little bit about Lincoln Road and how yeah. it went from being like a lot of local places, like a Panther Coffee, which is mm -hmm. now in Wynwood, um, and other locations, and it's more commercialized. And it's almost like in Miami Beach, everything is getting so commercialized and so, I guess, expensive. But I feel like in Miami Beach, one of the beauties of it was the locality, like you know, yeah. places like the Standard where people like it, a lot of locals hanging out and stuff like that yeah the standard is amazing mm -hmm. um, well Miami Beach just in general keeps a very tight lid on on new supply of anything um, I do like some of the things that have been able to get built even with their you know very high regulatory burden in Miami Beach um, the uh, Baptist urgent care uh, facility on Lincoln mm -hmm. Road uh, I mean, on Alton Road, okay, some yep. of the other uh, kind of mid-rise mixed-use projects around Alton Road and Lincoln, mm -hmm. um, uh, which are four, five, six-story ground floor retail with uh, with uses above. That's a it's great infill. It's a great scale. It's not it's not overwhelming, but it's very nice uh, density. So I do like some of the things that I've seen. Oh, and also, uh, what is it? The Courtyard Marriott that got built along the Dade Boulevard Canal. Oh, yeah, that the looks really nice, yeah. really nice looking, and very little parking, if any, uh, in that. Yeah, um, I'm usually. I, I don't know that. They, I don't know if they have a parking. I guess they have to have a parking garage 
usually that's that's like a busy intersection so I'm just trying not to get hit yeah it's a very complicated there. intersection yeah but I, I heard some statistic that and maybe it's from the Miami uh, Convention and Visitors Bureau that only six percent of tourists to Miami now rent a car only six percent they're just going with uber and uber and lyft yeah and that number gets even less when you're talking about Miami Beach only three percent of tourists to Miami Beach are renting cars mm -hmm. so it makes sense for a hotel to not invest money in building a parking garage if their guests right. uh, don't need it so anyway I love I, I, I like a lot of what I'm seeing along the Alton Road corridor yeah right now and then what uh, Crescent Heights and what Russell's got planned um, on uh, right uh, the flyover yeah I'm really excited to see that what does he have planned for that I think it's uh, a one taller building uh, and then a couple of other lower buildings and then also donation of land for a park. Okay. Yeah, and then also building, a, I think, a pedestrian bridge mm -hmm. over, the, uh, over the, of the MacArthur, which is great because that's always been a, a, talking about tough intersections. <laughs> it is a tough yeah. intersection. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing we forgot to talk about, and you mentioned um, before that at Fortis, you guys have represented um, some restaurant developers, I think, with design, and uh, you had a friend who started that. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that's kind of unique to Miami that I think, coming from Central Florida, is up in Central Florida, we have a lot of restaurants that are chains, and yep. while you have, you know, your typical fair, uh, your chains in Miami, mm -hmm. a lot of restaurants are owned by locals and operated, so hmm. I guess um, talk about, like, some of the restaurant scene that you're seeing in different areas that you like? Well, Wynwood, Wynwood is basically a giant food hall. Mm -hmm. It's just block after block of, after block of, of restaurants and bars. And um, like I said, it's changing. There'll be other things being added to the neighborhood, but as it stands right now, Wynwood is just it's a giant food hall. Um, there's a lot of really great restaurants in the neighborhood. Um, some of them are chains. Um, I think there was uh, Federal Donuts that was here for a bit, um, which is based out of Philadelphia. Um, uh, but independent restaurants do quite well. And, um, you know, th there's more, more space uh, opening for, mm -hmm. for F&B in the neighborhood. Um, Wynwood Walk, which we're the, the fee developer for, has 60,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. um, they had, a, my understanding is they had a lease signed with a chain restaurant group, and that uh, group may have been involved in some uh, financial uh, uh, shenanigans, so that they went away. Um, and uh, so, Maybe the independents, uh, I mean, they're certainly doing quite well here. Yeah. Um, but look, it's a very difficult business. Whether you're a chain restaurant or an independent restaurant, there's a high rate of failure. So right. it's not to say that everyone opens and, uh, you know, stays open for long. So, right. Um, but yeah, Wynwood is, Wynwood is doing really well right now. We just had our office Christmas party at a place called Doma uh, across the way. And I had not been there before, but uh, I've been back since. It's a very nice place. Yeah, that... That place, Doma, um, well, where it is, like a, across the, I guess, the sidewalk, there's like a, 
an event space, and there was an art gallery there. Nice. Um, when I hosted a Halloween party that nearly killed me a couple of years ago, it was in that space. It was kind of like a almost kind of a loft thing, but that's that Winwood Tracks project oh, okay. I was mentioning okay. earlier. I don't know what else has gone in there, but um, anyway, well, let me um, ask you this then. Because a lot of my listeners, they're they're into real estate. Um, you know, so, several of my listeners are even they are developers or they're um, they're realtors for developers and stuff. Why uh, why do they go? Why should they go to Fortis Design and Build for their project? Oh, the plug. Yeah, the plug. Um, well, I, I uh, I'm not very good at selling, um, but there are uh, there are a lot of folks who are investing in Miami who would really like to build a building and uh, who maybe don't have a local real estate department or a development department um, uh, or have, you know, have capacity uh, needs where they want to focus on other things, opportunity costs. And we can step in and deliver a turnkey building with all the expertise and none of the opportunity costs to our clients so they can focus on what they do best. So we handle everything from financial modeling through putting together the consultant team, design, engineering, permitting, other government approvals, bidding, overseeing construction, managing the relationship with the construction lender, and delivering a, a finished building. And um, we, I think, I think, I think, I'm confident in saying that uh, there's no other group in Miami that can offer the full scope of services that we do. And really, it, it could be something where, I mean, if someone's looking to buy land in Miami, they should probably start with you guys before they even consider the letter of intent for the land and the contract to kind of get an idea of financial modeling and, and all that stuff. I, I appreciate you saying that, and that's certainly how we like to get involved as early as possible. <laughs> um, uh, coming in with a, a, a reasonable development model, um, rather than trying to save a development that may be suffering from uh, assumptions about impact fees that were you know, underrepresented or land overpaid for or not understanding what the zoning rights were when you, when you were buying the land. So we like to, we like to come in and, as early as possible. And there are other groups that uh, do owner's rep or construction management, which typically come in later on in the process. The and construction managers. Yeah, they offer great mm -hmm. services. Um, we can do that, but with all of the strategic, financial, and entitlement understanding uh, on the front on the front end. Right, and I guess um, you know we talked a little bit about entitlement. Um, I want to expand on that just real quick, and then we're going to get to our living the dream questions. <laughs> no. um, but um, you know, in Vieira, where our project is, we've already got every, all the entitlements for all the land, and we basically have these entitlements which are development rights and it says okay you can have a certain number of residential homes a certain amount of square feet of retail projects this and that how does it work in miami where i guess when you buy the land the entitlements are already running with the land correct yeah so in the city of miami um, you don't always have to go to a public hearing that's um, okay. uh, you know discretionary approvals um, are which are typical in cities like Miami Beach, where you don't know really what you can build unless you go to a public hearing and, and, and they tell you what you can build. Uh, here in Miami, the code is, is fairly clear. Um, if you work within the envelope of the building, the lot coverage, 
the height, the setbacks, um, you can go straight to building permit. And that's as long as you meet the height requirements in the zoning code and yes. density, things like that. Yes. Okay. So there are certain things that you do have to go to public hearing for, um, such as if you're doing a project larger than 200,000 square feet, you need the input of the city's urban design review board. But again, that's advisory. That's not binding. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a ni an another nice benefit. Um, here in Wynwood, you have to bring your project to a Wynwood Design Review Committee, um, which just looks at the artistic elements of the building, because that's an important uh, aspect of Wynwood, is all the street art. Um, but otherwise, you're able to move pretty quickly to building permit in the city of Miami, um, which, which is fantastic in terms of the timeline um, and the risk profile, but also means that you really need to understand what the zoning allows, mm -hmm. because if you're going, if you're investing all this money in a financial model and land acquisition and going into a building permit, thinking that you comply with the zoning code and you don't, that's a that's a very you don't you don't get kind of this these bites at the apple leading up to it that tells you oh yes I'm playing within this within the right sandbox, so that's why it's 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 beneficial in many ways but it also puts the burden on the developer to really understand what they can do. Yeah, and that's why it's so important where um, when they come into a new area, um, or even if they're in an existing area, I mean, they need to do all this stuff, ideally before they even go to the contract, but definitely within their due diligence period, which is basically their inspection period to figure this kind of stuff out and decide if they want to move forward with their contract or if they want to exercise the right to terminate. Um, yeah. So, and, what, and it's something that you, do, you deal with as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very big, you know, important part of the deals that you're doing, which is you've got entitlements that you understand. You're transacting with a counterparty who wants to come into that. Do they really understand what they're getting into? Yeah. Making sure that that process runs smoothly. In Vieira, it's a little bit different because we've already got approvals for all the land entitlements. So the way it works is if somebody wants to come in and buy a site, or even if we do a ground lease or whatever, we kind of know what they want to build, and they'll, they'll be like, okay, I need entitlements to build a 15,000-square-foot building. And so what we would do is when we convey the land to them within the deed, we actually say this includes a, the entitlements to build that. Mm -hmm. Now, what it does in Vieira is um, it does tell the developer, hey, this is what you have to work with. And a lot of times we even have a clawback provision in our deeds mm -hmm. that will say, okay, if you don't lit, um, build all of this 15,000 square feet, we have the right to uh, claw, uh, basically claw it back and it yep. goes back into our pot of entitlements which we can use for future projects. So they don't have to, and that's a benefit for Enviera, so they don't have to go through um, design approval with the county, but mm -hmm. we we approve it kind of like, um, you know, in Wynwood they would have the design approval. Sure. Which I think is a good thing because, you know, you don't, you want to have a certain look for your building and kind of protect the values of the areas in the neighborhood and you don't want this you know the pink flamingo coming in necessarily unless that's part of your look you know you got the astro building over here that's pink but yeah. well for those who um, are interested with fort fortis design and build i'm going to obviously have it on my website and on my social media but the website is www.fortisdesignbuild.com and fortis is f-o-r T-I-S, and of course, Andrew is the Director of Development. But um, it is very interesting to always hear about what's going on in, 
in Miami development because I always feel like that real estate trends, um, especially in the state of Florida, they start first in South Florida, and then they make their way up, up the state. Well, we, we like to we like to set some trends here. Yeah. So, all right. Well, since the show is called "Living the Dream" with Ben and Rodney, I have to ask you a few "Living the Dream" questions. Aye. This is like the pop culture stuff. Um, but first, I'll start. You know, you came down, uh, graduated from University of Michigan, came to Miami, kind of like me, coming to a, uh, a new state, a new jungle in Miami. Yeah. What are your uh, What are your favorite areas of Miami? Where, and like hot spots to go to, and it, it's not just like restaurants. It could be like destination places. For sure. So, I live in Coconut Grove, so I have to say Coconut Grove. There's some interesting things happening there. The new Mr. C Hotel, um, the redevelopment of Coco Walk, uh, some beautiful projects along Bayshore. Um, so, uh, Coconut Grove is really happening right now, and they have fantastic parks along the waterfront. So, mm-hmm. that's a can't miss uh, area of Miami. I really like it. Um, I like also going down that way, you know, enjoying nature, going to places like Matheson Hammock uh, or out in uh, Virginia Key, some of the more quieter beaches. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, Key Biscayne. Yeah, yeah, Virginia Key, Key Biscayne. Um, not necessarily South Beach. Um, and, uh, you know, Little Havana, I've invested, I've developed some projects in Little Havana. Um, Little River, uh, a friend of mine is uh, a couple, actually a couple of friends of mine are, are investing and redeveloping in, um, in Little River. Um, the Citadel, if you haven't been there, it's an amazing food hall. Um, Where's that at? It's, it's just at the north end of the city of Miami, like uh, 82nd. Is it off um, US 1? Uh, yeah, just west. Okay. Just west. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been there. I knew uh, uh, they were adding a lot of that, um, I guess they call it. Well, it's not mid. I forgot what they call it, but that 51st Street area all the way up to like, I guess, Miami Shores. I know Miami Shores has been growing a lot. Um, yeah. So this the Citadel is kind of acting like a hub for that area. Okay. Um, they have, like I said, a great food hall, and they also just opened up a sustainable, ethical, kind of department and fashion store, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend. It's called Pivot. Mm-hmm. Got to check it out. And then just south of there, my other, another friend is is uh, redeveloping some properties. Um, one one place within his area you can check out Imperial Imperial Moto is the coffee shop. Uh, it's very nice there. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, I, I do think though that that interest in urban neighborhoods is dispersing. Mm-hmm. So what I might like, you know, kind of the stuff that's on my radar, but there's stuff happening in Alapata. In, in, in other areas of Miami that I don't know about. And that's actually kind of the most exciting part, is that as you're having this dispersion of interest into different Miami neighborhoods, it's the, the sense of discovery and pioneering. Um, that's exciting. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, to, go, to kind of figure out where everything is in Miami, you kind of need a week, mm-hmm. and then you need another week to, like, be able to do all that stuff. Because even when I lived down here, I mean, I... I stayed in the Brickell area or South Beach, or I was in Coconut Grove because I played softball in that park um, yeah. in Coconut Grove. But I really didn't do anything like, I mean, I, I would go to Aventura like if I had to go to the mall or things like that. But it's like with the traffic, you just kind of get in your little pockets. Mm-hmm. And now there are so many unique little pockets. I mean, you look at Doral. Doral's 
increased a lot with um, City Place Doral and yep, downtown Doral. There's a little bit of everything for someone to do in Miami. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next question. So, I am a huge Seinfeld fan. So I've oh. got to ask you, what is your favorite Seinfeld episode? My favorite Seinfeld episode. Oh my gosh. I gotta say, the quote that I the quote that I most often pull out from Seinfeld is that one: "He's a loathsome, offensive brute, yet I can't look away." Oh, <laughs> the, Kramer the Kramer painting. painting. The Kramer yeah, painting. Exactly. I have the Kramer yeah. painting in my house. <laughs> I, I quote that line all the time, all the time. Usually referring to some like train wreck of a development or some something that's gone horribly, horribly wrong. I just look at it and say, it's a loathsome, offensive, whatever, but I can't look away. Yeah. No, that was a great one. Um, yeah, yeah. All right, next question. Uh, what's your favorite Bill Murray movie? Uh, gotta be Caddyshack. Gotta be Caddyshack. Caddyshack um, turns 40 years old this year. Yeah. I've enjoyed him in other movies. I really, really love him in Rushmore, which is my favorite movie of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but in terms of just showcasing him at the height of his comic abilities, yeah, can't beat Caddyshack. All right. Yeah. Well, my next question, I might get the same answer. What's your favorite Rodney Dangerfield movie? Um, my favorite Rodney Dangerfield movie is actually anytime you are quoting a Roger Dangerfield movie. <laughs> um, or actually, one of my good friends from law school is a huge Rodney Dangerfield uh, fan as well. So uh, I like I like when you quote or when when my buddy quotes him. Uh, that's just, that just cracks me up because I see how those movies and his comedy have just lasted so mm-hmm. long and just touched so many people's lives with humor and, and insight too because everything that he said was... I mean, there was a lot of his humor that was very grounded in, in social insights as well. Yeah. So uh, I just, I just, I love to see it, how it brings people joy to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when you quote it, when 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 other people quote it, that's my favorite. All that's right. It. So well, I do quote Rodney Dangerfield a lot. I mean, I named my bulldog after him. There you go. All right. Uh, next question. Um, other than your immediate family members, if you could uh, have dinner with three people. A celebrity or non-celebrity, who would you pick? Oh, man. That's so... Okay. So on the on the real estate and urban planning side, problem that I'm really interested in is, or a solution is, I'm really interested in the grid. I love Miami's grid. But going back to Manhattan and the gridding of Manhattan back in 1811, I'd love to understand what was going through their minds when they when they did that. Um, when you say the grid, what do you mean? I mean, they, in 1811, if you look at lower Manhattan, all the roads go all different ways. Mm-hmm. And in 1811, they basically said, as we develop Manhattan from the nor- going north from this point forward, everything is going to be on this street grid. Mm-hmm. And the politics involved in that, the civil engineering involved with that, the, the real estate economics involved with that, like that's such a monumental decision and we have almost no record of it and I'd love to go back and just sit and talk with I think it was actually a commission of three people but whatever any one of them and just talk to them about why did you decide to do this uh, because I think that it it's shaped so much about Manhattan and could shape so much about Miami development if we understood more about the 
the origins of the grid. I think a lot of cities just copied Manhattan, mm -hmm. um, but without understanding why. So I'd love to go back there and understand why. Um, in terms of, so that's on the, on the, on the professional side. Um, in terms of like charity and ethics and, and, and uh, you know, morality, I'd love to, I'd love to go back and talk to a little bit more about uh, with Alva Chapman, who was a sort of legendary civic leader in Miami. And I got to meet, but uh, not, not very well. He seemed to lead a lot of interesting um, civic initiatives after the hurricane, um, the rebuilding of, of Dade County after the hurricane, when there was a, a huge spike in homelessness, after um, in '92, yeah, '92, and then and then addressing the homeless crisis with a homeless uh, plan, including the the homeless center that's now named after him, the yeah. Chapman Center. Uh, he seemed to be able to get folks together in the city of Miami uh, around social issues, issues that were important, issues about caring about our fellow man um, that we just don't seem to be able to do anymore. Um, and I think, you know, obviously I'm coming at it from the zoning perspective, and I think zoning effect touches on a lot of social issues, but uh, whatever it is, whatever, however we're trying to make Dade County great, um, the way that he was able to bring people together and, and motivate folks behind a common cause, I'd love to understand mm. more how he did that. Um, and I would say maybe the third person would be an artist. Who would that be? Um, Maybe the guy that uh, at Winwood he had the banana and the duct tape. <laughs> Man, that guy's a genius. That guy's a genius. Um, well, oh, you got food. Yeah, right there. And then, and then some guy went and ate it. Mm. You know, I'd love. To, you know, who I'd love to go back and talk to. And I, because I've been thinking about getting a tattoo. I've been thinking about getting a tattoo, and I've been thinking about what would I get if I had to get a tattoo. And one of the things that keeps popping up in my brain is uh, our lines from Paradise Lost. So to go back and talk with Milton about where these lines came from for him and whether what was artistic choices for him versus what were theological choices for him and then how he, you know, how he translated that into, into the classic uh, epic. Um, that would be really interesting. But that's really just, yeah. That's just I want a tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I got two more questions for you. Um, you know, in your career, um, you've had a lot of people that you've learned from and uh, have been mentors. Who would you pick as uh, your top mentors to you? Oh. And it could be both yeah. professionally but also personally. Well, professionally, um, it has to be Neeson. Neeson um, Caskey. Yeah, working for him for six years um, right out of law school. Um, learning uh, the level of professionalism, uh, the substance of zoning law, um, but also how to practice law while maintaining an active civic um, uh, civic life. Yeah. One um, one thing so I wanted to mention about Neeson as well, and I, I forgot to last time. Um, you know, we talk about how quality, of, um, how a, gr a great individual he is. When I moved down from um, Kentucky and I was working at at Gunster. You know, in the, the law firm world, you don't always have the ability to go back 
uh, to your hometown for Christmas or Thanksgiving, depending on billable hours. So, you know, we had a pretty good team over at Gunster, a lot of very fine people. And I remember one year, um, uh, Neeson and his wife Anna invited me over to their house in Miami Beach for Thanksgiving because I didn't have anybody else at the time. Um, and so I always remember that. So it's just a, another example of him being a fine person. He is. He is a fine person. So, great mentor. So, um, was any, any others other than Neeson? Um, God, that's a pretty good mentor, right? Yeah, there. yeah. Um, I've had other fantastic uh, professional mentors along the way, but uh, just from the time that I spent with Neeson, the six years, and the stage that I was at in my career, and uh, he was, you know, he's just uh, clearly the most formative uh, for me. Right. Um, and in terms of in terms of a personal mentor, um, gotta say my parents. And uh, they've, they've taught me a lot of, I'm sorry about this background yeah. noise here. That's all right. Um, we're, we're talking about construction here, so it just adds to the flavor of the podcast. Yeah, construction noise. Yeah. Um, my parents taught me a lot uh, about how to be a good person and, um, and how to have a family. And I try to emulate a lot of their, their, role, their role model and how I, you know, how my wife and I uh, uh, have a family and, and, and uh, try to pass on things to our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, typical. But i got to say my parents. Yeah. All right, one final thing. Um, so with the show being the live in the dream, um, how, how are you living the dream? How's, An- how's Andrew Frey living the dream right now? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I do still enjoy a lot of aspects of South Florida. I love the weather. Uh, like I said, I like I like getting out on the water when I can. Um, my father-in-law has a boat, so sometimes we get out on that. Uh, fine dining, enjoy that, and um, yeah, getting involved with real estate projects, being able to build what I did in Little Havana, um, the townhouses there, a project that I, I you know ran start to finish, came up with the product, hired the architect, bought the land, found the investors, all that kind of stuff. So. It's, uh, I, I literally got to build my dream project. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from, the, from all the great quality of life aspects of Miami to uh, being able to literally build your dream real estate project, um, I, I have a lot to be grateful for. Yeah. Well, that's a good story, and I appreciate you coming on to talk about, uh, you know, what's going on with uh, you at Fortis Design and Build and also in Miami because, you know, Miami is always changing, and it's... Um, you know, uh, a very interesting place to say the least, and it's always good to get insight from people who are actually in the trenches and helping with the design and helping the projects uh, come to fruition. So I want to thank Andrew again for being on the show, and like I mentioned, uh, you can learn more about his uh, company here at Fortis Design and Build at www.fortisdesignbuild.com. They're in the Wynwood area of Miami, and uh, definitely check it out. And I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Um, I always enjoy talking real estate with a friend. So uh, have a great Same week. To you. Yep. Ben, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. So thanks a lot to everyone for listening. Hope you enjoy the show. So have a great week. <laughs>